and welcome to On Tap, a very special edition, the first edition that has the three co-hosts recording face-to-face in Palmer House Hotel in Chicago. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined, as always, though for the first time in a first-hand uh, live co-present way, uh, by Sarah Beijung of Bowdoin College. Hello, Panel. Great to see you in person. I know, I can reach out and like touch your arm. Exactly. Um, and I am joined as well by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Hi, Harvey. Hey, it's good to see you too. To yes, we are you. happy to visit your uh, your part of the universe. Chicagoland. And your fabulous uh, suite in um, Palmer House. Um, so we have a special podcast today. We are going to keep with the, the three-topic, uh, three-segment format. But listeners, if you don't know this already, you will learn that we're recording our third segment live and out in the open on the fourth floor of Palmer House um, in a separate recording session. Um, The first topic for today is PSI. PSI 22 took place in Melbourne, Australia um, back in July. Uh, There were four keynote addresses and we got our hands on uh, copies of two of them, the one by Bruno Latour and the one by Rebecca Schneider. Um, We will then talk about ATHA uh, appropriately enough. This is the 30th ATHA conference. We're here at ATHA. We've just been uh, partaking in the sessions and um, hearing keynote addresses and everything, and we're going to talk about our favorite ATHA memories. Before we get to those topics, though, we have some news to round up for you. The Hemispherica Encuentro just happened in Santiago, Chile. Around the same time, I think we're maybe just after PSI, uh, the Encuentro was uh, July 17th through the 23rd. Uh, keynote addresses were given by uh, Maria Emilia Tiu, who is a sociologist at the Universidad de Chile, and by Angela Davis, uh, emerita of UC Santa Cruz. Um, there seemed, at least in those keynotes, to be a kind of sociology and social movements theme, um, but at any rate, a lot of the material from the Encuentro is at their website, the hemisphericinstitute.org. Next, we wanted to give you up to date with ASTER. The ASTER working session um, participation has been finalized. The elections uh, were posted actually Monday. The schedule for working sessions has also been posted if you know where to look on the ASTER website, and we will put a link to that on um, ontappod.com. Um, next, a little bit more movement of a senior your scholars. Suk Young Kim is uh, leaving UC Santa Barbara for a position at UCLA, which she announced, I think, right at the transition in the fiscal year. In terms of late-breaking news, there's some out of ATHA. Of course, ATHA awards were distributed. Anthea Kraut won uh, the Outstanding Book Prize for Choreographing Copyright, Race and Gender and Intellectual Property Rights in American Dance. Can I just put in a, a, a quick note? I was really pleased. Um, I accepted on on Erin Mee's behalf because um, she wasn't able to be here. And you were fantastic. Yes. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate Bravura that. performance. Uh, but the I think it is very exciting that Atha Aster are recognizing uh, and have created a special category for digital scholarship. This is a, a significant and and I think you know represents the efforts of a lot of different people uh, about digital scholarship in a you know a largely print based field and so I, I really want to recognize Aaron's outstanding work we also had an honorable mention in that category mm-hmm. who received uh, Miguel Escobar 
for a project that he did about uh, Wailing Contempore, which is uh, contemporary Javanese shadow puppetry, and a website, uh, in actually an entirely digital-based, web-based dissertation that he did on that, and which is now available online. And I'll post a link to that as well. But I think it's really exciting that this kind of work has come. But we actually had several outstanding submissions. I was the chair of that committee and found it uh, really gratifying to see so much great work coming out in this area. So I look forward to, to that continuing. So I just want to highlight that as my own personal, you know. Yeah, I think the, the existence of that new award is a significant development in and of itself. And, it is, and, it and, is. And kudos to Atha Aster and the anonymous donor behind Oh, yes. Behind that, anonymous, that support. Shadowy anonymous donor. Thank you. <laughs> Other uh, late-breaking Athen news, I saw that Noe Munt has tweeted that the um, formerly Latina Latino focus group has now changed its name to Latinx, Indigenous, and the Americas focus group. Um, and this is not news, but we did want to mention Stacey Wolf emailed us, um, having listened to our episode 002 that had the Hamilton segment, and she pointed out that we, and I think I specifically referred to the recording of Hamilton that everyone has been listening to as a soundtrack, which it is, of course, not a soundtrack. It is an original cast recording. Um, and we thank Stacy for pointing that out. And that, is, of course, is a very meaningful distinction. Films are films, plays are plays, musicals are musicals, and original cast recordings are original cast recordings. But we do want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has responded to the podcast yes. and thank people for listening and especially thank those who have taken the time to let us know that you are listening, either in person or via Twitter, Facebook, or email, yep. and encourage other folks who might be listening and are so inclined to let us know what topics might be interesting to you, mm -hmm. uh, questions, comments, responses. We're very grateful for the uh, response that we've had and, and open to feedback of all kinds. Absolutely. Our email addresses are easy to find, um, but we also have a podcast email now, hosts at ontappod.com. Feel free to drop us a note. Um, let us know what you think. And review us on iTunes, if you would. We have lots of traffic, lots of downloads, but no reviews on iTunes, and we appreciate some of those. So enough preliminary business. PSI 22, the 2016 Performance Studies International Conference, recently wrapped up. We mentioned that it took place in Melbourne. There were keynote addresses by Bruno Latour, uh, Richard Franklin of the Wyland Center of Indigenous Arts and Cultural Development, uh, Rebecca Schneider of Brown University, and Peta Tate of Latrobe University. We got our hands on the Latour and the Schneider keynotes, and we are excited to talk about those. There's, of course, that sort of climate climate change and ecology theme that runs through those two and I, and I believe ran through the entire conference. Uh, Sarah, you were there in an official capacity. What can you tell us? What is your dispatch from Australia? I, I was. I, uh, so I was very pleased to attend uh, PSI 22 in Melbourne, Australia, and congratulations to Eddie Patterson and the, the rest of the committee. Uh, Rachel Fencham, uh, of course, of University of Melbourne, Paul Ray, Robert Walton, Alison Campbell, Peter Tate, and Angrid Wynne-Jones, all of whom I think did a, a really phenomenal job uh, of coordinating and organizing that conference. The topic of, of PSI 22 was, of course, performance climates. And the irony or the sort of incongruity of talking about climate change while inviting a number of scholars to make the carbon rich investment of traveling to Australia 
was not lost on anyone and was readily acknowledged. I was going to say, that's a lot of jet fuel to get a lot of European and North American scholars it, to it, Australia. It is. And, and you know, I mean, uh, so this was my, I was finishing my, my fourth and final year on the board of the dire- of directors for PSI at this conference. And one of the things that we that we discussed and, and that I think is, is should be recognized is it's difficult to travel to and from Australia. But this was one of the, the first conferences in a while, and maybe since Singapore, in which PSI had been in the Global South. And this is really significant. And Australia, New Zealand, you know, Thailand, Singapore, you know, represent as, as fluid states demonstrated last year, Philippines, et cetera. There is a, a rich performance studies tradition happening in the Global South that is often inaccessible mm-hmm. to those of us who are based in North America and Western Europe. And in fact, our, our colleagues from those areas have been regularly making what is not an easy, I will just say from personal experience, not an easy transition to, to join us in, in, at PSI and other locations. So uh, while, yes, it was a significant investment, it was, not a, it was not a casually required investment. And I think it was really great that we were back in that area. I was also really struck by the tradition, I think, of acknowledging the land rights of where we are located. Um, That was on the conference program and the indigenous populations. And it really made me think like, oh, why don't we do that more often? Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe it's just, you know, in in my own North American context, be a kind of tokenist gesture that, but it seems like a, a worthwhile thing to acknowledge. It was also significant as the final year of Michael Blaker's uh, tenure as president of PSI, and I think that's really important, and we were excited to welcome Sean Metzger as the incoming uh, president oh, wow. of PSI. I didn't know. I did not know that. Oh, well, yeah. then I should have mentioned it for the news oh, round. Yeah, Sean Metzger, congratulations. Congrats to Sean Metzger, yes, who will be our next president of PSI. I am a Sean Metzger fan. Uh, me too. As are many of us, um, <laughs> particularly on the PSI board. Uh, I'm also pleased that the website appears to be successfully launched and yeah. is accessible, and it includes a, a kind of connected social media aspect, um, and that our membership model for PSI seems to be moving forward with relatively few hiccups. So I was I was pleased with the, both of those initiatives. So we looked at and read uh, a couple of these keynotes. Bruno Latour's um, address was videotaped and is on YouTube and hopefully will remain there where podcast listeners can check it out. Um, And we reached out to Rebecca Schneider to see if she would be willing to share the draft of her talk with us. And and she very generously sent that along. Um, And so we read read and uh, listened to those two. And I think there was a lot of really interesting cross-pollination in the thinking between them. You know, we don't presume that listeners to the podcast will have seen or heard these talks. There were uh, not too many of us that were able to make it to Melbourne. Um, so I'll just give a quick praises, if I can, of, of, um, of the two. Latour began, his talk was called Climate uh, Sensitivity, um, and his thesis was basically that with a new climatic regime upon us, um, he gave you know, a quick mention to the debate, the geological debate about whether or not there, we are in an Anthropocene uh, geological era where human activities are remaking the surface of the earth to a greater degree than other factors. He argues that there's a kind of intersection overlap of three different aesthetics that 
uh, will make us sensitive to um, the new uh, climate, the new climactic reality. These are scientific, uh, political, and artistic. Um, he, I think, really made a, an effort to engage with performance studies and with the, the concept of performance, though in the talk there are these moments when he is sort of winking at or joking about being a sort of honorary member of Performance Studies International or acknowledging that he's sort of entering into the concept of performance anew. Nonetheless, I think he really thinks through performance in a, in a sophisticated way. And the body of the talk is six different rules of thumb um, that he gives for um, uh, how performance itself can help enhance this new sensitivity which we need to the new climactic regime. If I can just interject here. Please. Part of his talk was based on a project that he did in advance of the Paris Climate Talks. And as a, uh, the board of directors for PSI was invited to a screening of a documentary about this, this what he calls a pre-enactment. And it was a gathering of youth from around the world to stage a kind of UN-style discussion um, about the climate, but included... Uh, entities not usually represented in such uh, venues. So um, one of the delegations was oceans. One of the delegations was soil. One of the de- delegations was um, uh, what was the what was the adjective he used? I can't remember exactly, but it basically like um, economic uh, economic interests or something. Economic like interests. Well, there was one that was specifically about industries. Right. Um, another was uh, oh um, undiscovered oil. Okay. Right. Was one of the delegations, and and his much of his keynote focused on this question of the Mm pre-enactment as a performative mode of engagement. And one of the things that was really interesting in the documentary that didn't make it into the keynote, so so again, uh, relatively small audience, but but as a member of, of PSI board, I was able to see this documentary is there's a moment, a wonderful moment. So there's the, these young people are, are basically put in a theater, um, on the outskirts of Paris uh, for, th- for, you know, for like a week and they have like two days of research on their delegation and then they have a three-day uh, event. And um, there's a moment in the documentary that didn't make it into his talk in which the, the, the people, the participants become so frustrated with the limits of language that they begin to express themselves. And I think it's like at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, you watch these like, people like it just kind of don't stop. They're just like falling over on couches and benches and lying down the floor. And like at two o'clock in the morning, they start to take all the chairs that are there for the formal delegation and they stack them up in this kind of tower of Babel in the middle of the room on these special tables that were designed. And it's, it's such a beautiful expression of the frustration of the discussion around climate change and the and the lack of efficacy that this rhetoric has given us and it was really beautiful to see a bunch of you know 20 year olds you know or so acting out in the way that i think many of us feel the need to act out in response to clearly there's a problem clearly what we're doing is not working and yet the more we talk like it doesn't seem to yield anything and there's sort of like expression in physical performance and almost a kind of nonsensical futility i found one of the most arresting and beautiful things in what in what latour's project had done 
that sounds really amazing. And you do get in his talk, you know, three or four minutes of that to just get a sense of what that, you know, what that event was lo- was like. And he uses it to illustrate some of these um, uh, rules of thumb. Uh, there is a great... Uh, discussion of a concept a sort of narrative that he lays out about where we are as uh, a sort of you know networked species facing um, this challenge where he argues that you know we sort of find ourselves leaving this land of old looking for a new global utopia but we are in transit to it and have discovered that it can't exist i think he name checks brexit as one of the um, (laughs) points of evidence that suggests that there is you know essentially that a sort of utopian globalizing project has failed to materialize or be viable and so we need to find our way to earth right we need to sort of find a way to um, uh, understand the earth apart from uh, on the one hand, the the land of old, the sort of old age of grand discoveries and uh, mercantilist expansion and colonialism. On the other hand, a kind of globalist neoliberal utopia that uh, has too many problems and is uh, unviable for a variety of reasons. Um, and so the bulk of his talk is really organized around how performance can help create a sensitivity to um, this new set of facts that we are immersed in and a rendering of the earth that we need to realize for ourselves. I will not go on and name all of these six rules of thumb. They're in the talk and they're on slides. They're easy to find. But he goes through some things that would sound very familiar to us, the way that you know uh, performance can renew attention to certain objects, the way that it can dramatize and de-dramatize states of affairs simultaneously, which I thought was a sophisticated and, and novel notion. The ability to um, represent non-humans, and that's where he talked about um, yeah. and showed the video from that. So it was all very, um, it was it was very interesting to watch someone at his level, at his you know his reputation and his body of theoretical work engage with performance. One of the things that I thought was interesting about it was that you know I just got done in a in a grad seminar reading his reassembling of the social his mm-hmm. actor network mm-hmm. theory book and there he uses the concept of performance as performativity. What was interesting to me was that he was very he seemed very much to be trying to meet PSI on its own terms by talking about live performance theater, right? <laughs> Whereas I feel like uh, a lot of, in a lot of pockets of performance studies, we're very comfortable talking about performativity as an abstract concept. But he was sort of meeting the conference on a more performance, aestheticized performance category. We also, as I said, read Rebecca Schneider's talk. Um, uh, this, uh, I believe, it's called "Extending a Hand." It, the talk begins with a meditation on Schneider's visit to Peshmerle, uh, the French region where there are Upper Paleolithic cave paintings preserved, and in particular, those negative handprints that are. I, I believe it's theorized that those are created by human being putting their hand against the wall and then spraying some sort of pigment around it. So you have this you know, very evocative, indelible handprint. Um, this encounter becomes the point of a departure for Schneider to meditate on the ideas about liveness, about the liveness in the encounter between a hand impression made 30,000 years ago and in 2016, about the way that human and non-human entities can hail each other and create call and response intervals, um, uh, and ultimately the way that climate change require, requires a radical new historical consciousness. 
So this talk is, you know, if you were there, you got to hear it. Um, it's not available for circulation yet, and I hope that um, Rebecca will share it. Like a lot of Rebecca Schneider's work, it is bold and provocative and twisting and challenging, and she weaves in um, a lot of meditations on the status of the hand, um, the gesture, um, and works through a kind of chain of ideas that end up with a meditation on the hands up, don't shoot gesture, which is central to the Black Lives Matter movement. Also, she begins to grapple with um, aspects of new materialism, which are frustrating or, or you know, problematic. Um, and in a way, this talk to me seemed like a sort of continuation of a lot of the ideas that were talked about at the um, Aster a couple of years ago, the post-human Aster, right? So this new materialism is the sort of idea of object agency of non-human animals and inanimate objects having a kind of performance potential. So I don't know, what did you guys think about these two talks? Well, I, I, let's hop in here. I think that, you know, to start with Schneider, what she does is she, I think, takes the occasion of the location of the conference being in Australia as an opportunity to think about bridging. Yeah. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, what does the act of travel mean, right? Not only for her going from uh, the U.S. to Australia, but also for her to go from the U.S. to France, right? Mm -hmm. uh, France, that, that yeah. 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 Uh, and... And, and, and what happens, there becomes a way in which as bodies move, you become aware of other previous prior bodily traces and presences, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and what Rebecca Schneider does extraordinarily well is she's a person who um, is masterful uh, using language that sort of slides and elides and overlaps uh, with, uh, uh, with itself. Mm. Right, as a way of demonstrating the overlaps, um, not only of language, right, but also the overlaps of sort of time and bodily traces and presence and histories, you know, so that you can imagine uh, the act of a person being, in a way, co present with an ancestor in a cave, you know, with a hand and an imprint. Uh, that offers a sense of presence and an awareness of one's self that's beyond oneself, right? You know, while also thinking about the act of raising one's hand mm -hmm. in a contemporary political moment where it aligns with a different sort of set of events, right? So I think that is something that is very rich and requires unpacking, but it's, a, it's an unpacking that will occur after lots and lots of reflection, right? Where, yeah. you, where you return again and again to the turns of phrase, uh, the language he employs. What's really compelling about thinking about these two, and, and I don't want to dismiss, you know, Peter or Richard's presentations, um, which were also excellent and, and introduced really important perspectives. What I found really interesting is that one of the ways in which Bruno Latour contextualizes the, the project that he did is as what he calls pre-enactment. And of course, few of us who have read Performing Remains can think about that without reflecting on the different ways in which, you know, Schneider has in, in both that book, but also in, you know, her, her uh, several essays discussed reenactment. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of wonderful parallel between and, and tension between these, these two works. And just to, to bridge on something Harvey is talking about with time, you know, within, within her talk, there's a moment in which she calls on very specifically, uh, and I'm quoting here, 
We must be done with linear development capitalist growth narratives in favor of a more syncopated species thinking that reaches across or among times that roots around in the intervals of cross-species time. Mm -hmm. And this idea of subjective time, it seems to me, maps on very nicely to what Latour is, is doing, which is to move discourse out of human exclusive language and domains and yes. start to think about what is the experience. And I, I just want to make another bridge to work that Aaron Mee has been doing recently in terms of dramatic structure, which is to rethink the kind of Aristotelian linear, um, you know, Gustav Freitag pyramid, right, which has, is, in, is intensely hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that I think, you know, many of our, our Darwinian structures tend to be huh. hierarchical in yes. terms of, of placing the human at the top of, a, of an evolutionary chain, although yeah. perhaps that's a misreading of Darwin. Um, I, think, I think it is, but I think it was common in the 19th century. So we now know that, you know, there's no, you wouldn't think of a human being as being more highly evolved than an earthworm because both humans and earthworms have found their niche and they're doing fine you know, sure so in other words but that but i think you're quite right there is a way of thinking of evolution as being a ascending forward moving progressive process well i mean i think i, I to, be, to be to be really fair i think i mean earthworm. you know what's that, that? Earth, earthworms earthworms well you know i mean they're here's gonna the thing. get us but they, they, I, so i taught yeah, for a while the end, they, they do win <laughs> cockroaches weren't you know i mean this is really interesting i used to teach uh, when i was at colgate uh university uh back in the dark ages um, uh, I used to teach in, in the core curriculum, Challenge of Modernity, and one of our core texts was, was Darwin's Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the challenges of that text in talking to students is to say, uh, you know, how am I not more evolved than a cockroach? Yes, right. But of course, for Darwin, different than, say, the social Darwinists and the people who followed him, like Herbert Spencer and those folks, is that actually Darwin is like, you know, the most evolved is the most adaptive. Right, right. Not, That's true. Not the, the, the most beyond. And, in, and so in part what, what Aaron Mee is doing is rethinking dramatic structure in terms of chakras, yeah. <laughs> which, which equalizes and de, mm -hmm. you know, like collapses that kind of hierarchy. Um, I think it's also something that, that Schneider is talking about in that collapse of linearity. And it's something that Latour seems to be doing, um, and I think it's realized by the students who are working in this project in which they engage very rigorously with the notion of like, how would the oceans argue? Sure. And, um, and how would they argue in the context of, of a UN structured yeah. discussion? Well, this is where you get, at least in that, you know, um, the, the portion of the documentary you spoke to, you get this sense of the actor network side of Latour creeping into this. But I wanted to pick up on something else that you said, Sarah, which is that I think it's the uh, this idea of there being a sort of radical de-hierarchizing or a uh, this sort of, I don't know, this post-human uh, turn that's manifested here. One of the, the really interesting things about uh, Rebecca Schneider's talk, I think, is this sort of incipient critique of new materialisms, where she does acknowledge what I think is a lot of people's uncertainty with the notion that, you know, we should consider the chair and a rock and the sky to be agents like human beings. And that we're, you know, we are a lot of different agents and we are all animated. And really the, the big sort of question is, 
the I think the difficulty of thinking outside of the human and human mm. categories. Uh, Schneider mentions that you know there are aspects of the new materialism that extend animism, agency, and liveness to absolutely everything. And she points out that one of the consequences of that is that it you know, it threatens vacating historiography. Right? That there's you know if you do away with the human, then you have a you either have a completely new and radical history that encompasses all sorts of uh, extra human non-human entities or you just have no you know a sort of vacation vacating not a vacation but a vacating <laughs> a vacating of historical consciousness um but it also wipes away historical materialism you yeah there are ways in which you can't have your marx and your marxist tradition um without the sort of humanist underpinnings of of historical materialism so she sort of wants she seems to want to put the brakes on a kind of entirely leveling I'm, I'm not i'm putting words in her mouth but she expresses uh qualms at the at certain aspects of new materialism which would think get us outside of the human entirely and what are your thoughts on that um i think it's compelling i mean it's a great dilemma it's one of the points of connection between her and um latour just the very idea of an anthropocene right in a way this is the the i think the gesture of this geological idea is that it's supposed to alarm people that we are now so far gone on our industrialized path that we're changing the very surface of the earth in a way that's utterly unprecedented in natural history and yet if you look at it through the lens of this um sort of uh well say you look at look at it through the lens of deep ecology one of the arguments of deep ecology is that as long as human beings think of themselves as exceptional as long as they as long as we think of ourselves as um very special animals unlike other animals we're not going to be able to recognize our uh, dependency and interconnectedness with other species and we'll fail to see ecological catastrophes creeping up on us and so what could be more exceptionalist than naming an entire geological epoch after one's own species. Do you know <laughs> yes. what I mean? Yeah. I will say, though, that, uh, you know, I attended also Peter Tate's talk, and, and I mean, I found, uh, you know, I found her work a, a kind of useful bridge between uh, Latour and Schneider. How was her work a bridge? In the well, I think it, it's, you know, one of the things she engages is, I mean, her, and her talk really tried to kind of bring a lot of I guess what we would broadly call animal studies mm-hmm. uh, together in terms of, of, you know, rethinking this notion of the Anthropocene. So without, like, how do you negotiate that moment without privileging the human, but without also negating, right? So in some ways, trying to talk through some of the questions that you're raising. We should move away from the, the hardcore uh, theory of PSI and uh, gra- I will grab the steering wheel and steer us towards our fond and nostalgic memories of Atha. Would that um, be a carbon-free steering there? <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a it's a it's a raft on a lake. And oh, no, brilliant! We are we are making yeah. a car- carbon-free transition with the steering wheel. I don't know. That was the least carbon-intensive vehicle I could think of. Uh, but we are here at Atha. This is the thirtieth Atha. Um, in certain ways, um, I think of Atha as being sort of on the other end of the spectrum from PSI, though um, uh, maybe that's just because I feel like AFA is one of the more theatery institutions and conferences, whereas PSI is more, uh, I don't know, performance art, performance studies. It's its sometimes a little too cool for theater. 
at any rate, we wanted to talk about ATHA on its 30th anniversary. Um, so Harvey, what, as president-elect, uh, can you share with us about uh, your sense of ATHA's place in the field of theater and performance studies? Yeah, yeah, we are really at the center of looking at theater within higher, higher education. And we think of ourselves within this organization as advocates uh, for theater at the level of colleges and universities, uh, the people who will... Uh, sort of help lobby in support of and stand in defense of adjunct uh, faculty, uh, those who will look out for graduate students, those who will uh, you know, work to prevent universities from closing down and canceling theater departments, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's where we center ourselves because we feel as though it's important to actually have theater and performance studies departments to be able to create that level of scholarship. Uh, but if we want that work to go out there, to be out in the world, you know, there has to be an institution, there has to be a body that uh, devotes itself to the continuance of the theater performance studies scholarship. Makes sense to me. Sarah, what was your first AFA? My first AFA was summer of 1997. Uh, I had just finished my first and only year of an MFA directing program at Purdue University. And I was making the transition from Purdue to a doctoral program at uh, University of Michigan. And I, uh, through my advisor at the time, uh, Robert Knopf, uh, organized me on a panel talking about uh, graduate directing. And I, I don't have anything more specific than that, but that was my first, my first conference. Um, I remember so some salient things is I, I joined the LGBT, and this is pre-Q, I think we added Q later. <laughs> I think we were still having like the debates about whether queer represented all of us or not, right? Um, and, and found a tremendous community of, 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 of people there, um, as well as the Women in Theater program, also a, a, a great community. So that was my that was my first AFA, summer 1997. This is one of the things that distinguishes it too, though, is that it's very much practice oriented. I wouldn't say it, it not to the exclusion by any means of of scholarship, but where you can find panels on you know directing in university settings, uh, acting pedagogy, things like this. There's more of that at AFA than there are than there is at Aster, Ifter, PSI. Oh yeah, we joked one year that you could you know like. All you had to do to create an app the panel was topic and acting. <laughs> right? So you could do like climate change and acting. Climate change and acting. And that would be a really great panel. Yes, yeah, so we just there was apparently a whole conference like that in uh, in Melbourne. In Melbourne. <laughs> um, Harvey, Harvey, I want to know about your Atha early Atha experiences. See, my first one was Toronto nineteen ninety nine. I think okay. that's my first one. Whenever, whenever Toronto occurred. Well, my, I remember my, my first one was Toronto, but it was 2004. There were two Toronto. There were two Toronto. Okay. And I just remember driving to Toronto from Ithaca because I was at Cornell in grad school, and everyone had said, uh, everyone told me that you know, like this is going to be one of the conferences that you will consistently attend uh, because of how it advocates for theater. And it was it was a lot of people. It was a lot of people, uh, and uh, much like ASTR, my first experience there, lots of people looking at my name badge uh, and not recognizing the name because there's no reason for them to, and it was humbling. 
uh, you know, so I learned from that experience never to look at name badges, so I don't do that. I, I refuse to look at name badges um, uh, because it's just unpleasant right. <laughs> to do well, that. Like, especially when you recognize someone and you're like, I should know your name, but I'm going to look right there and then say, hey. Yeah, but I can say the really cool thing about that was I was in the book exhibit by myself because I didn't know anyone really there at the conference. And uh, David Krasner, a great theater historian and scholar, uh, came up to me and introduced himself to me and then like five minutes later he brought over Harry Elam uh, another awesome guy and uh, and they became just these really nice people who were friendly to me and all they said was hi to me and where are you from but but the impact of that was tremendous and the fact that they just welcomed me in that moment then made me feel a bit more welcome the next time around uh, so that was great. And then also, since I was pretty much by myself, um, I was sort of adopted by other graduate cohorts. So I was adopted by the UC Davis cohort, which was a big deal back then. There was, a, there was a, like, you know, like there were lots of graduate students from Davis then. Was that when Janelle was there? Um, see, Sue Ellen was there. Okay. And and then the CUNY folks uh, adopted me. Uh, the CUNY folks, they're, shout out to the CUNY folks, yes. man. They are super welcoming, and you almost anybody can be a CUNY folk. They're good you're people. Just willing to hang with them. Good They're, people. They are great. Yeah. So yeah, but it was really that. It's like you know, there's a way in which I went from being all by myself, alone, to just being welcomed, welcomed and adopted by these different communities. That's great. Know, and then became a home for me. What about you? Yeah. For me, it was I believe it was 2004 Toronto, and I it was not my first conference. I presented at MATC. Um, which is a smaller, you know, Mid-America Theater Conference, smaller event, and lots of grad, grad students there. But just like you, Harvey, I knew that, you know, Atho was, a, you know, the big show. It was a big conference and national, and um, that it, was, it would be a good place to get responses to your research and start to build a reputation if you wanted to enter the field. Um, I was on an emerging scholars panel, which I will say this about, that's one of the things about ATHA that I think is great, which was that I had been to METC, I was intimidated by ATHA, but the emerging scholars panel, which are four, you know, four graduate students or four people who are having a, you know, sort of first conference experience, um, was a nice sort of step up. So I, I think it was a theater and religion emerging scholars panel. I had a paper on Richard Foreman, I used to, I was like citing phenomenology, John Caputo, and writing about the face of suffering in Richard Foreman. And Ellen Diamond was there and asked me a pointed, challenging question, and I didn't crumble. <laughs> so good for me. <laughs> and the other thing I remember about that presentation was that I had a, a slide projector with the Kodak yes. slides, right? And the, the cord with the remote and the shink 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 shink. And I had gotten my photographs and taken them to, you know, Walgreens and made slides. So it was not that long ago, but it was pre-digital projector transformation. Because it was reliable then, right? Like, you know, like sort of yeah. Yeah, probably computers still could more, fail, probably right? Still more slides reliable. reliable. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, this discussion of Atha's bygone and fondly remembered uh, uh, needs to draw to a close. We're now going to take a quick break, and the next thing you hear after the break will be us live on the fourth floor of Palmer House. 
Hello, listeners, and we are back at AFA in Palmer House for our third segment on intro texts. We are out in the hallway. You can probably hear the din of fellow conference participants uh, in the background talking, and that's by design. We are very excited to have some uh, special guests who we will introduce in a few minutes uh, to talk about this topic with us. But Sarah, Harvey, I don't know what you guys have uh, thought about in relation to this topic. Intro texts, I was thinking, you know, what are those readings that one assigns in an introductory level course work really well for a variety of reasons? This leaves open the question of what kind of course is it, right? Is it an intro to theater arts course? Is it an introduction to performance studies course? That we don't have any sort of determination about. And in terms of my own uh, thinking on the topic, um, I know that I there's one short essay that I'm sure you all know, Eleanor Fuchs' Visit to a Small Planet, which I think I assign in almost every class I teach of every level because it gets students used to ways of reading plays in different ways. Sarah, Harvey, what do you... Uh, what do you think? Are there are there go-to texts for syllabi that you guys prefer? Yeah, well, I I teach theater in context, which is basically a large lecture class that has a primary audience of aspiring theater artists, specifically actors, right? So when I teach that class, my goal is to introduce them to the profession of theater from a variety of perspectives, not just uh, from the one stage point of view. Uh, so I do a number of things, right? So I, I, I uh, uh, excerpts from Jill Dolan's work in Utopian Performance, right? And that this way it gives students a sense of community building and the power of theater. I uh, usually present a series of excerpts of readings uh, from uh, theater critics, and I'll have uh, since I'm in Chicago, uh, you know, I'll have Chris Jones, the, tri- the Tribune's critic, come to the class and talk about what critics do, because I think that sometimes critics have a uh, I get a negative. Reputation, uh, apparently, uh, according to our plenary sessions. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I think that it's important for students to, to think about the role that critics have and the relationship that they have, and, and uh, with, with certain audiences. You know, that's actually, in some ways, in many ways, kind of separate from their relationship with with, with playwrights and actors uh, and producers. So, we do that, and then I also I think it's really important for students to uh, be introduced to a range of plays. Right. So, one of the plays that I normally like, will kick the season off, the the, the, the quarter off with is uh, Brandon Jacob Jenkins' uh, Neighbors, mm. you know, which is a play That's a great, in which uh, sort of slackface appears uh, as part of that production. And then they ask the students to write a response in which they were the director of the production, and they have to uh, prepare their actors uh, for the, the piece, but also why the piece is being chosen. So those are three different takes on that. Now I think would be a good time to start to bring in our special guests. We have three uh, very distinguished colleagues who have agreed to add their voices to this segment of the podcast. And they're awesome and right next to us. They're awesome and right next to us. They can hear us talking about them. Uh, I thought I'd start with uh, Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Many, I'm sure, of our listeners will know Brian, um, uh, in particular from his uh, own podcast, Sneaky Lulu Says, which is fabulous, and you all should download and listen. Um, Brian, this is a very awarded bunch, I will say, and I will just mention that uh, Brian's book, Latin Numbers, Playing Latino in 20th Century U.S. Popular Performance, uh, just was awarded the honorable mention for the ATDS Book Prize. So, congrats, Brian. Thanks. Brian, what do you have in mind, or what do you think about when you think of intro texts for these courses? Well, uh, for whatever reason, most of the introductory, most of the courses I teach have not 
easily lodged at the sort of straight on introductory level. They've usually had to be both introductory and upper level simultaneously, you know, and this is both. And so I, so what I find is I'm always looking for the text that will let me introduce the core principles of the class to people who have not encountered any of them. And then as well as something that is a way for students to sort of, if they've had some, some introduction to these ideas, to work through them at another level. And the text that I just find teaches better every time I teach it is, as a play, is um, David Henry Wong's M. Butterfly. Because I think M. Butterfly, whatever I'm teaching, there's usually a way that it lets me teach three of three aspects on it at the same time. Uh, different issues of historical temporality, uh, the question of what was the historical moment of the play, what is the histories being staged within the play, what is the distance that we have on the play now, opening out to conversations with Brecht if we feel like it, taking it to contemporary questions of cross-racial or cross-gender performance if we want to, bringing in questions of non or non-Western gender presentation. So what I find about it is is it lets depend I, I really am consistently impressed at how adaptable it is to any class I need it for and and again with introductory text I find uh, just like with Eleanor Fuchs's essay it's great to sort of throw a lot on the table that is not digestible you know but in a way that is engaging enough so at least they've had a glancing encounter with this breadth of ideas even if we don't actually take them all up in the context. And uh, to that end, another piece that I find myself using a lot, in part because of the kind of courses I teach, is a little piece that Richard Schechner wrote for American Theater about five years ago called Casting Without Limits, which is basically, he sort of opens up this idea, which is not a new idea for Schechner, of just not cast, uh, focusing us a little bit on gender, but uh, really just saying, like, why do we need to worry about social identity when we cast any play? And it's, again, it's a, his premise is not especially well argued, it's not especially fully formed, and it's not at all possible. And all of those things end up letting the class chart whether they, like, that space of possibility. And so I find that that's what I really prize in an introductory text, is a text that's um, rigorous and ambitious, but also very much like nothing is solved by it like that in some ways all the questions of the class are instigated an in butterfly would be i think really uh that's a that sounds like a great example of a play to teach partly because there are complicated issues of representation mm -hmm. uh, there's theatricality to it that would uh, allow you to talk about the ways that plays are different from novels, right? And it's a mystery, and so it's, it's it's sort of a mystery who done it. So it opens up the question of what is the urgency and pleasure of a dramatic text, in contrast to other modes of reading that students are well rehearsed in. Right. So. I think it's also kind of cool the way in which uh, raising texts that have that have problems and are not that are not perfect unto themselves or don't you know have have visible gaps that we can yep. investigate. I think that's can be very empowering for students in terms of developing their own critical vocabulary and uh, because if, if everything seems perfect and solved and elegant, there's almost no room for them to push into that uh, without having to take up an enormous amount of kind of chutzpah at the beginning. Yeah. Well, and that's, and, and I also like it as sort of a litmus of sort of like if students have a really heated response to some aspect of a, of a, class, of a text that I, they encounter early on, yes. it helps give me a read of the room and its dynamic, and it also forces me out of the role of opinionator and forces me to be a little bit more responsive to what they get from the text as opposed to what I'm going to give them with the text. Yeah. And so, um, so that's, I think, part of what I like about these things that each, like with David Henry Wong, 
each year I encounter it, I encounter different questions about what I read in 89 when I first saw it in the distances and sort of mm -hmm. it reveals itself in different ways as it goes along and that helps me listen to the students as a, as a way of them charting the conversation of the course as well as me. Absolutely. That makes sense because it's such a layered text yeah. Yeah. Uh, and butterfly. Uh, so you have students who might have a strong reaction in, in one aspect but they're not going to reject the play. Uh, wholesale or if they do then we get to talk about why right. why and it and because it all will then come back for me the dramatic structure of a play like it goes back to it's a very complicatedly built play and it helps us go back to the question of how do we read a play which is for my students um, I feel like the theater kids I have to un untangle their reading them as product as sort of like I'm reading this for a part for me or whatever yeah. like sort of try to think of it as a complicated text and then also for the students who are coming to my classes without a lot of experience reading plays, how do they even figure out what to do? And that is that is the courses I teach, especially now. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the courses I teach, especially now, do engage multiple constituencies. So, Thank you, Brian, and please uh, stick around. But I wanted to turn and introduce uh, our second guest, Charlotte Canning of University of Texas at Austin. Charlotte is also a very awarded and recently awarded scholar. Um, her book on the performance front, U.S. Theater and Internationalism, won this year the Joe A. Calloway Prize from uh, awesome. New York University. Congratulations, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank on, you. on that award. What's on your mind in regards to intro texts? I, you know, I was so uh, excited when I saw your open invitation because at the University of Texas in the Department of Theater and Dance, we've not just overhauled the texts that we teach, but we've also completely reinvented the course itself. It's now called, it, it, it's uh, previous title was, well, its first title was Introduction to Theater. Its next title was Languages of the Stage. And its current title is Performance as Public Practice, which of course is also the name of our MA PhD program. And what we established for the students is that performance is an analytical, an ethical, professional, and public policy practice. So the readings flow from that. And some of the readings are ones that I'm sure many of you in, in, in theater departments end up assigning, the plays that are being done that semester in the department, those kinds of things. But um, we also do some of the readings that have already been mentioned. For example, the Eleanor Fuchs essay, which we also pair with Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And there's this great moment every time we teach it when I ask them, how many sections does the Fuchs have? they say, I can't remember, it's like six, right? Mm -hmm. And then you say, how many sections does Aristotle's <laughs> Poetics have? And their jaws drop because they realize it's the same. <laughs> and I say, well, what happens when we compare these? So it gives them, it sort of makes Aristotle seem a little less fusty and Fuchs have a little more authority <laughs> in their eyes. So it's an interesting moment. But I think probably the biggest difference from a lot of what my colleagues do nationally is, is our insistence on teaching policy and our insistence on students learning infrastructure, how it is that the, that live performance, primarily theater and dance for our purposes, came to be the way it is in the 21st century. So our belief is they can't emerge from our program as leaders who are gonna change the profession or the world if they don't understand how either works. So for example, a really core text for us is Crossover, How Artists Build Careers Across Commercial, Non-for-Profit, and Community Work. Uh, which came out in 2006, which is uh, one of the kind, it was sort of one of the, what do you call it, like foundational studies that also helped reinvent 
how uh, funding works because the foundation model was really a 20th century model. We're moving into different models now that organizations like Creative Capital are um, piloting or are modeling. So we tr also uh, talk a lot about the comments. We have an exercise where we talk one class session, we talk about HowlRound and they read from HowlRound, but then the next session they have to write and read to the class a HowlRound piece as if they were writing for that. So there's a lot, and we have a whole class on pitching, how to pitch your work. So we feel very strongly that what we're trying to prepare them to do is uh, very different from what the traditional intro to theater did. Um, if we think about sort of what I call one essay, the heady days of 20th century growth in the academy, right? The emphasis in most of the departments was on talent, which we as wise, experienced, sadly old professors would uh, recognize in the student and then our job was to, you know, like nurture that spark and all that. Um, as one of my colleagues, Paul Bonner Rodriguez said, now we're just sort of more experienced travelers on the same journey. So it's, a, I think, a very different way of positioning ourselves right away with freshmen. So we're not like waiting to some later point to establish ourselves as sort of fellow travelers, but saying right away, we're not going to give you a lot of answers because they're ones we don't have. Yes. Do you find that there's a kind of, uh, I don't know, learning curve or adjustment period of expectations among the students? My thought, I mean, it sounds like a wonderful text and a wonderful pedagogical approach, but my sense would be a lot of students are in that room because they want to be on stage, they want to stage manage, they're interested in the art itself, and then to hit them with public policy at the gate uh, it seems like it might be a challenge. Right. Well, we don't call it policy. Well, we call it policy in the... But when we're talking about it, we're like, how do artists live in the United States? Because another great thing about that text, if any of you have seen it, and it's available free online. You can download it. We t I still have my paper copy because I, you know, that's, I'm from the 20th century. But um, what we... What's so great about that text is with the policy findings and the study are these great sidebars that are interviews with individual, huge diversity of individual artists asking them how they do it. And our students love those sidebars. So sometimes, depending on the vibe I'm getting from the room, I might start with, what was your favorite sidebar? Right? Why did you so, like, why did that artist's experience and narrative seem to speak to you more than another artist's? I mean, you know, part of this came from, I remember um, a long time ago teaching, and I said, almost as a second thought to the students, does anyone here know what a not-for-profit is? And after that deathly silence and stillness, one poor, brave soul raised her hand and said, it means you can't make money? <laughs> Which is when I realized we had a lot of work to do, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, they don't know what these things are. And in fact, now when I ask that question, I get exactly the same response. I actually have a PowerPoint slide of the tax code. And I say, what if I told you it had to do with we can't, you can't pay shareholders, how uh, if, the, if the corporation is ended, how assets are distributed, and a certain required organizational structure. And they are, they're almost blank because it just never occurred to them. And unfortunately, we've lost our best example, which was until last year, the NFL was a not-for-profit. So when I was able to say... Well, the NFL is a not-for-profit. They understood that not-for-profits could make a lot of money. So I need to find another <laughs> example. But Egregiously profitable. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> right. Well, right, right. So that's a good one. Charlotte, I have a question that uh, goes back to something that we talked about on the podcast uh, an 
episode ago, or maybe a couple episodes ago, about this question of neoliberal uh, ideology and its intersection with theater and performance. And you know, certainly one of the models that you know artists are embracing is a uh, you know the, the the self-driven entrepreneur. You know, goodness help us, the entrepreneur as it sometimes gets <laughs> promoted. I'm I'm wondering how you engage with that with that language or that discourse and that and that idea because in some ways seems to me artists have always been uh, kind of neoliberal entities before we had, you know, like when it was pre, you know, paleo-liberal entities, right? <laughs> right. Um, but I'm wondering how does, how, you know, particularly now that we're in a very different moment and certainly driven by different kinds of media outlets and the need to create your own website and stuff like that, how do, how do you engage with that with your students? That's terrific. And it's important because what we don't want to become is sort of neoliberal shills, right? Like, mm. it's great, all you have to do is work really hard, and right, which has also <laughs> regular liberal, uh, right? Those are paleo-liberal, yeah. Horatio Alger implications. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, one one asset we have that is just circumstance, right, is that uh, Paul Bon Rodriguez is part of the teaching team and he wrote um, Performing Policy, which is, of course, uh, a history and performance studies reading of performance policy and takes, and he's one of the few artist scholars who really has a robust critique of the notion of entrepreneurship. So we both present it to them, but then we also try to undermine it. Um, because also, uh, one another of the trajectories in the class is that it carries required flag in ethics, which University of Texas uh, added to the curriculum a few years ago. At this point, it's the only department course that has the ethics flag. So what we're also always thinking through the ethics of a set of actions. Mm -hmm. So what is it, and we think about it sometimes very small and local, like what does it mean if you treat someone next to you in a certain way? But we also think of it big and global, right? As um, Gayatri Spivak once said, every first world feminist book is written on a computer assembled by a third world woman. So what does it mean, right, if we're making certain choices in the U.S., what are the ripple effects or what are the things that are happening around the globe that make those choices seem impossible for us? So we try to keep those things in conversation. And of course, not every student across all the sections engages with every moment, but what we try to do is by defining those trajectories, analytical, ethical, professional, and public policy, is figure that some approach to each of them will snag everybody eventually. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that what we're trying to give them are tools to navigate from there on out. Um, for example, we, uh, uh, Brian, I, I know this is starting to get a little round table -y, but uh, we also include the Casting Without Limits essay, the Schechner. And one of the things we do is we talk about it a little, and then I say, in my section, for example, I say, okay, well, I'm glad you are interested in this because this will be the department casting policy starting next semester. And there's, you know, first there's paralysis, and then it turns into this great argument. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the end of the class, there's always some brave skulls like, um, Dr. Canning, is that true? I'm like, no, it's not true. Um, <laughs> Which I feel like now that we've taught the class enough, probably people are starting to be start warned. You know, like okay, when you read that, it's not true. But um, until but it, it becomes true, right? Until it becomes <laughs> true. But I mean, and as as Brian said, it's it's not like the most amazing uh, piece of scholarship, but it is terrific for freshmen, especially in my situation, which is freshmen who have done every school play that's come their way and are deeply versed in. They know what acting and designing, yada, all those things are. 
but they haven't thought about why bulls were cast the way they were. Yeah. It's a really great um, approach, and in a way, uh, the reverse of what I think a lot of theater programs do, which would be to sort of, in the senior year, think about professionalizing and what's a Lord theater, and where are you going to find an artistic home to get them thinking about that at the door, it's great. Um, I want to bring in our third guest, uh, no less distinguished than our previous two, DJ Hopkins of San Diego State University. Um, uh, late breaking news for DJ is that he is a co-awardee along with Shelley Orr and Kim Solga of the AFA Excellence in Editing Award for 2016 for performing the city and performing the global city um, out of Palgrave. So congratulations, DJ. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank and, you. Um, What's on your mind on this topic? Well, uh, the book that, uh, as soon as I picked it up, became indispensable to my teaching of theater history is Nicholas Rideout's little volume, Theater and Ethics. And I don't think I'm saying anything that Nick doesn't already know. I saw this book in manuscript. I was sent it by Paul Grave, and I was one of the reviewers. And I had agreed to re read something for the series, and when I opened the package, I looked at the title and I thought, no, this is, you can't write a book on this subject at any length, even <laughs> a thin volume in the theater and series. And I was immediately won over, because as anybody who's read Nick's work knows, he's, he's a really gifted writer, and he's brilliant. And the, the chapters in this short volume do a wonderful job of creating these encounters between uh, performance and dramatic literature and philosophical discourse that make the intersection between theater and ethics seem absolutely inevitable. And uh, you mentioned what kind of class does this go with. I came to uh, my current university and took over a two-semester theater history sequence that had previously been taught not unlike the theater history sequence I took as an undergrad, which is we read Brockett from beginning to end. And uh, along with many others, I don't really find the idea of being able to offer a smooth, continuous, uninterrupted theater history course as um, plausible. That's, that's not really a doable thing, and many classes have tried, and I think I have to imagine theoretically all of them have failed. So uh, I began a case study approach to the class, and I was teaching it before I, I picked up this book. And immediately before I would finished reading it, I was imagining how I would incorporate it into the course. And as it's a short book and it's a two-semester sequence, I piecemeal it out, as short as it is, and uh, have one chapter in the first semester, and then the second semester is really built around the second and third chapters in the book. And I just find that students really respond well, in the case study format, we have these little groupings of dramatic literature and theater history and performance context, and we juxtapose unlike things. And then there's this kind of uh, unrelated thing that is a section from Nick Rideout's book that puts this contextualization into yet another context and provides this, this meta if you will, a meta perspective on each of the case studies mm -hmm. and provides a through line strongly in the second semester because Nick's book is sort of biased towards modernism and postmodernism, mm -hmm. but it really provides this through line of, of course, over the course of the year, that answers the question, what, what does theater do or what can theater and various forms of performance do? And additionally, one of, one of the great gifts of this book is that throughout, Nick is thinking about the role of the audience in the book, culminating in thinking about uh, the audience as witness to various kinds of non-theatrical performance, 
which, given a fairly conventional student body, many of whom just want to be actors, or many of whom have just seen fairly conventional theater from mm -hmm. high school to university, our university tries to be regional theater monk gay, and then regional theater, there's a certain amount of sameness. And when I conclude with a case study on Marina Abramovich's work, it dovetails nicely with the ethical and performance thinking at the end of this book and really helps push my students over the edge into minds blown that sounds, by the end of the year. That sounds phenomenal. Is this, is this two-semester cycle, is it, the, is it billed as a theater survey or a theater history cycle, or is it intro to sort of a gateway to the rest of the department, or...? Uh, it's a 400-level class, okay. and at my university, l less so now than when I started there, but teaching a 100-level class and teaching a 400-level class is like teaching at two completely different universities. The 400-level class is really in it to win it, and I can start a new unit on performance art with two weeks to go at the end of the year, and they are there to the very last day having a conversation about Nick Redhout's book. I can assign new reading on the second to last day of class and when I get to the start of the class people are putting their hands up early and it's a blessing I don't have that experience teaching the 100 level class right. but uh, it's not uniform right. but the 400 level students are really invested which is a, a great gift and makes uh, it's a short book but it pre presents challenges yeah. accessible as Nicholas writing is and uh, it gives an opportunity for students to, to stretch and this 400-level class goes for it, which is wonderful. What about plays? Are there plays that, in terms of, you know, maybe in the 400-level class, though it sounds like that's obviously almost like a kind of capstone experience for them, with a room full of freshmen and sophomores who are thinking about the major, what's a play that you like to put in front of them? Trifles. Uh, in my 100-level class, I teach... Uh, Susan Glaspell's Trifles, 1916, because it offers a really interesting snapshot of realism. But we also dismantle it to show how realism is not the same as the real. It's constructed. And it's also a mystery, not unlike Oedipus, not unlike her long black hair. So I, I can provide a, a kind of transhistorical way of thinking about realism as a construct. Uh, the audience as co-detective with characters and the way space can be used to talk about character and theme in, in, a, in a play that's short and engaging at 100 years old. So that play works for me and I find that it works for my students. When I, we spend a couple of days talking about it when I ask them, is this play still relevant? I get a lot of yes, which, which is reassuring because yeah. The work is not done Yeah, that Glasspool and others began. Um, it's interesting listening to all three of your contributions, that there does seem to be a kind of mixture of what you might think of as, um, what would, how would I put this, uh, traditional canonical um, material, and I'm thinking by this, I'm thinking about Aristotle. <laughs> um, and I know, Brian, you didn't mention Aristotle, but when you were talking about M. Butterfly, I'm reminded of a kind of almost Sophoclean, well, that, that, that it's this sort of Thunder. building, you're walking down the path with this protagonist, and there's going to be a big yeah. uh, catastrophic revelation at the end. Um, uh, Charlotte, you're, you know, teaching of Fuchs alongside Aristotle uh, himself, that's, some, that's a strategy that in a different version I have employed in terms of 
trying to teach students how to read plays. And a lot of there are a lot of reasons to want to sort of get beyond this kind of er model of dramatic construction. I, I guess the question I have for the whole table is, to what extent do you feel like you still need to have it as a reference point early? Mm-hmm. Or to what extent do you feel like it's useful to go right for the post-dramatic or write for 20th century and avant-garde critiques of such uh, patterns? I think that the question for me is, do we actually need... Like, for me, it's the question of how productive it is it to read Aristotle, or is it more, effect, more effective to uh, sort of approach Aristotle through other exegesis of Aristotle and sort of getting a breakdown, going through the six elements, doing these kind of things? Like, is it a rhetorically useful piece and then what translation and all those kind of things like that for me is the question I go back and forth on and then depending on this on the context in which I've taught I've also tried to be attuned to how many other people are teaching Aristotle Um, because if other courses like script analysis are relying heavily on Aristotle then I don't necessarily feel like I have a particular uh, generative connection to that material that would be a useful additional encounter so I try to fortify the basics but I do think that that's that question of what I hear in that is that question of canonical methods of teaching theater versus sort of more contemporary questions or, or emerging methods of teaching theater. What is the way that we balance that in our practice in the classroom? In the classes that I was describing, the, the 100 level class, whether I teach it or someone else teaches it, there's an introduction to Aristotle. And it's pretty rudimentary so that students who uh, haven't studied Aristotle get the basics and students who have are only briefly subjected to the basics a second time. What I find particularly useful is in the 400 level class, when there's a greater level of engagement, teaching Aristotle again mm-hmm. and asking students to think about it in relation to a chapter from Rideau's Theater and Ethics, in which he doesn't talk about Aristotle. He talks about Greek tragedy and uh, Plato, but he doesn't follow up with Aristotle. And so there's this wonderful opportunity for me to ask my students to read Aristotle and then synthesize right out the discussion of tragedy and Plato, which is really antithetical, and to ask a more critical question, not just can you memorize these key points and key Greek terminology at the 100 level, but can you think about the poetics and apply it conceptually to a, to a new conversation that you haven't had before? So rereading Aristotle, I have found, engages students in a different way. Teaching popular media, one of the things that I am I, I sort of often go back to is the um, is the anecdote of how uh, Goethe learned Greek, which is that his tutor took him around and they decided they were going to make a secret language that only the two of them understood. So they went and they they named they came up with words to name everything in the garden and then they wrote this secret alphabet and then they exchanged these secret letters and after a few years of this, right, uh, Goethe had learned uh, ancient Greek. Right, because the secret language, of course, was was Greek, right? But it was presented as that. And what I find with Aristotle is that that is the secret language that they've been absorbing mm-hmm. and learning through a lot of popular media. They just yes. don't know its yeah. name. Yes. And so it can often be, you know, how do we think about these things that you know and know really well? You know, what are the TV shows that you know? What are the YouTube channels that you know? What are the stories that are most familiar? And then working them backwards until they realize that the secret language that is that they feel like is incredibly tight and and speaks to them and their generation and is very contemporary 
has in fact a, a, a name and a history and a vocabulary that long precedes all of us. And that, that for me with a lot of my classes is this kind of aha moment that involves not about introducing him particularly, but revealing him within what they think they already know so well. Although for me, I think that I often wonder when organizing a intro class and realizing that students have a certain number of required courses and then the rest is uh, up to them to choose whatever and wherever you know, their interests will take them. Like, are there certain things that any of us feel people must know, right? Like, is it a problem for a person to be a theater major, uh, a person with a degree in theater, having never studied Aristotle, having never studied Shakespeare? I mean, I mean are there certain like figures that we feel as though if we met an alum from a school and you said, like, what do you think about Shakespeare? And they're like, I hear he's great. I <laughs> read his well, work. I mean, I teach, I teach in a program that isn't a major, that, is, uh, that doesn't have requirements. It's a program, not, not, a, not a department. And so the students have to take a certain number of courses, but there are no requirements within it. As opposed to where I taught previously, which was a very rigorously structured thing where it was down to all the, you know, they had one elective kind of thing. Like they, it was so rigidly charted. And so it is a question I think I try to encounter is I try to sort of approach in both contexts. And I think that in my previous gig where I did teach the two semester survey that I inherited, which um, I inherit my, my uh, graduate advisor, Joe Roach, who called it From Caves to Cats. Um, but I came to name it the Theater History Death March, which is where yeah. you are sort of, you know you're here and you know at the end you're getting there and how the heck are we ever going to make it, me included? Will I survive? Uh, will I survive, let alone y'all? Um, but the question is, is what are the core ways in? And now that I've gone to a program that makes up for in-depth what it lacks, up, lacks in breadth, it opens up really key questions. Like I can have a student who can... Uh, can do like for example one student I'm thinking of in particular knew his Ibsen all the way through I asked about Strindberg what <laughs> you know and those kind of gaps and so I think we have to really assess the questions of what are the students the rea the curricular realities of the students that we're dealing with and what are the ways that we feel are gaps that they would present rather than a uniform thing because I think I think that that um, that is a key question that I do ask and and one of the texts that I loved using when I taught the survey, the Theater History Death March, um, was a text, a weird little text uh, by Phyllis Hartnell um, called Theater, a, Conci a Concise History. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I love that is because it was mostly pictures, most of the canonical pictures that would have been in the Nagler or anything like that. Like it was really, and I used to say, this is the man's theater history like this. And if you read the narrative, you get the great Western story and they get it in a readable, well-illustrated, fully thing. And it's easily downloaded for them. And then we can approach it from different angles and say, this is the, this is what everybody thinks theater history is. And you've just gotten it very quickly. And now that you've got the routes, if you want to dig deeper. I was thinking that for us, I think it's an intersection of Sarah, Harvey, and Brian in that, for example, I don't remember how Aristotle ended up on our syllabus. I don't know that any of us are like the like Aristotle's team, you know, team Aristotle, <laughs> get that on the syllabus. But having put it on and taught it once, we realized we had this extraordinary opportunity, which speaks very much to what you were saying, Sarah, about how you can 
have them undo what they know by starting with something that's familiar. So for example, one question we often get to at some point in the semester would be, what happens to Aristotle's ideas if we reorder the elements? What happens, say, if spectacle is the most important? Um, and it takes them a minute to kind of get there, but then they're very, oh, right, so my investment has always been in character. What, how do I look at the analytical or critical of theater or live performance? The investment is not in character, right? The investment is in something visual or AU oral or whatever. Um, and it, it gives them, I think, enough of a sense that they have some tools and the courage to kind of go where they think they have no tools, but they actually do. So, but I do think it is like saying to them, you, have, you already have the secret knowledge. So I think we should go ahead and thank our guests, Brian, Charlotte, DJ. Thank you so much for adding your voice, voices and your thoughts to the podcast. All these award winners. Awesome. Oh, yes. yes. Thanks for the invitation. Very Thanks decorated. for inviting us. And, pleasure. and listeners, uh, you will hear a short break, and then the next thing you will hear is Sarah, Harvey, and me doing our drafts section. So stay tuned for that. And now we are ready to share with you our drafts. These are our works in progress, our thoughts in progress, our not fully formed um, ideas, but things kicking around in our heads nonetheless. Um, Harvey, you want to lead us off? Harvey no. doesn't. No. no. Uh, Sarah, please lead us off. <laughs> so I, uh, I have two brief drafts. Double draft. Uh, the first is um, I want to uh, thank all of our listeners but also to congratulate uh, this podcast because shortly after we released our episode on Beyonce's Lemonade, no less than Hilton Alls uh, published uh, an article in The New Yorker about Lemonade. And I, I really, I don't know that we can take direct credit for this, but I find it very coincidental, questionable, that the theater critic, right, <laughs> for The New Yorker engaged with Beyonce's album Lemonade shortly after the On Tap podcast engaged right. with Beyonce's Lemonade. And I just want to go on record as saying that I think we were far more generous and arguably more accurate about what was going on. I've, I, I found uh, All's uh, take on Lemonade uh, un, unfairly dismissive. Okay. Uh, and yeah, uh, so I'm just going to say like, yay us, Hilton. <laughs> second, second uh, on draft is, and I missed this back in, you know, in anticipation of June, but I would like to say a, a, a brief but very heartfelt congratulations uh, and warm wishes and happy Father's Day to both of my co-hosts, oh. who are wonderful scholars, but I know from uh, direct experience also uh, great fathers and partners. And I think that this is something that goes, we talk a lot about women in academia, we talk a lot about mothers in academia and the challenges of that. Those challenges are made significantly easier by good male partners. And so, and I am very privileged to sit with the two of you. And so it's almost better, though it's long past Father's Day, for me to acknowledge that in person and oh, making eye contact with you both. So I just want to say a, a big shout out and happy Father's, belated Father's Wait, Day well, to you both. That's awesome. generous. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. 
Um, uh, I'll sneak my draft in here. Uh, it, 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 it can't hardly follow those drafts of Sarah's, but um, uh, a little interesting peek into um, some of the numbers behind the big professional associations that many of us belong to. Um, I am co-convening an Aster working session, and this year um, uh, Josh Abrams and Jennifer Parker Starbuck um, are administering it, and we conveners all got a spreadsheet with the total with the final inclusions for everybody in working sessions and because it's a spreadsheet you can see how many lines are on it and so you can see the number of people all inclusive that includes the conveners and everyone in a working session now that's not all of aster right it's not the people giving plenaries or everyone who's registered for the conference but it's all of that now that's a number also, because of Atha's new transition and this uh, software that's helping uh, run um, the, the, the conference, if you look on the Atha website under the conference and go to the list of presenters, there's a list of everyone listed in the Atha program, right? And you can copy paste that into a Word document and make a list out of it and get a number for Atha. Now, what do you think those numbers are? Aster all-inclusive of working sessions? For presenters. 564. Just 564. And then what do you think ATHA is? Everyone in the program? 632. Harvey? I'd say uh, ASTR is probably 715. Uh, and is probably 950 for okay. presenters. Okay. What I recall, and this is these are rough approximations, is that the Aster number and its working session participants plus conveners is 475. Wow, Aster. it's way off. Aster. <laughs> Aster. And that ATHA, everyone in the program is 800 give or take five like 803 something like that now does that include double presenters because like i'm in the program three times no i think it's the list of names and then when you hit the name it it blows up i think it's 800 people yeah harvey what's your draft what is my draft my draft is I'm actually thinking about uh, Lydia Diamond's uh, keynote uh, address at this thought it was awesome current uh, atha conference 2016 and it ended on this note in which she essentially lamented the lack of diversity uh, that exists within contemporary professional theater uh, and also looking at university theaters as well. And she noted how she had spent 20 years sitting on panels talking about diversity. And it was the same conversation. And at the end of each conversation, there was this action plan that was announced but then the following year and then the following five years and the following 10 years, you were having the same conversation, the same sort of request for action and, and a similar lack of action. Uh, and she noted that universities have managed to do great things. Professional theaters manage to do great things when it's a priority, right? You can build buildings, you can uh, uh, create new programs, you can hire new faculty, you can do all these things. So if you put your mind to it, you can actually do it. But the fact that it hasn't been done yet uh, suggest a lack of will, you know, despite the um, many conversations that have occurred. So that's what I'm thinking about right now in this moment. Yeah, she was, I thought her talk was really candid, and that was a moment that was kind of heartbreaking, but also candid, and I was glad she spoke honestly. Yeah. You know, it's easy to say, we'll be better next year, but I think a lot of people feel the way she does. That really aligns. So this year I participated in the uh, Leadership Institute, and the final closing keynote for that event was Dr. Kim, who's president of Columbia College of Chicago. And and he was talking in very similar ways about, um, but also presenting 
uh, strategies that he he is really engaging with actively um, uh, in Chicago, and uh, and I've I found that that really inspiring. At the same time, I, I share, you know, having gone through the Leadership Institute, in which diversity and and you know questions of inclusion uh, were very front and center. You know, one of the things I was really struck by. Uh, is how similar the conversations are right. to what they were 20 years ago. And in fact, I was thinking very much of, uh, you made me think of it also, you know, the the Robert Brustein, August Wilson, Anna Devere Smith moderated conversation right. that I think is like 20 years old. You could look at that today and it's like it was written yesterday. Right. And that is, you know, that is really a challenge to our people. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed David Henry Wong, uh, the playwright, when was that, a few months ago, and I, and I published that interview in Theater Survey, the May issue of this year, and I asked him that question about like how he's basically spent a large chunk of his career since M. Butterfly talking about diversity in professional theater, and what is it, what things are actually making him hopeful that things can change in light of the amount of time uh, that has been spent. And his approach uh, from his vantage point was that he has seen very, very, very slow incremental change. Mm. Uh, but the fact that he can see that things are shifting just a little bit and the conversation, while similar, isn't the same, you know, that gives him hope, right? He's taking the, the long view uh, on the possibility of change. So, you know, it's, it's hard to know, but, but when, you, when you think of David is a person who's done that for 20 years, and then Lydia is a person who's had the same conversation for 20 years. And there's many videos where uh, the two of them are actually in conversation with one another, <laughs> right? I, it's, it's difficult to know what to do uh, with that. So I don't know, but maybe this is the nature of these, the importance of these conferences as well, right? Just to come together to brainstorm, and then maybe one day, you know, in a face to face meeting or even a live podcast, we could. <laughs> brainstorm some solution maybe for a future segment put that as a segment all right um thank you very much guys and listeners we will catch up with you next time on tap is produced with the support of the performing arts department at washington university in st louis and the master's program in theater and performance studies mary ellen vander hayden produces the program you can find us on the web at www.ontappod.com you can find us on facebook search for on tap and on twitter at on tap podcast